Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm Jason Carr. And I'm Preston Schrader. Today we visited with Dr. David Zarek, who is a professor at Odyssey University College in Brussels, Belgium. Today we had a great discussion with David. Uh, David, we first found out about David via his blog Twitter handle, which is called The Risk Monger, uh, where he tries to set the record straight with regards to technology, specifically in the ag industry. Um, and today, specifically, we talked a lot about glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, um, and how uh, even though it is a synthetic chemical, uh, you know, it's really, Jason, if you remember, David said it's in the same when you consider other common chemicals that are found around your house it's less carcinogenic than things like coffee Uh, yeah this is a very uh, eye-opening interview where david talked about the you know the difference between risks and hazards and when we talk about a chemical like this there's risks and hazards associated with it and we also dove into some of the litigation and it's a little bit of a cautionary tale about you know, if, if activists can take a safe product like this and demonize it in the media and turn public opinion against it, who knows what the next product is that they're going to set in their sights and attack. Absolutely. And another perspective is we always get asked what can farmers do or what can ag companies do to try to tell our story and provide provide a balance to some of the misinformation uh, that's out there, especially in, in the news or on social media. And I think David does a great job at, at addressing those inaccuracies and setting the record straight. So without further ado, let's jump right into the podcast and uh, hear what David has to say. Well, David, welcome to the podcast. Before we kick things off, could you give us a little bit of information about your background? Well, I'm uh, presently a professor in Brussels, originally Canadian, but I've lived in the uh, EU, particularly around the Brussels bubble, for 35 years now. So I guess that makes me mid-Atlantic. Particularly, my background is in risk, environmental and health risks, public understanding uh, of uh, uncertainty, and science communication. Very good. So I, I'm, I'm curious, how did the risk monger start? I've been following you on Twitter for probably two or three years now. Uh, I'm kind of curious what the origin story is of uh, that blog slash Twitter endeavor. Well, I had been working for industry uh, for the uh, Solvay, which is a large chemical and at the time pharmaceutical uh, industrial group. And uh, that's where I got into risk. And at a certain point from there, I worked at CEFIC, the Chemical Industry Council, uh, spent some time at Burson Marsteller and did some other consulting work. And I decided to retire around 2005 and uh, just relax, spend more of my time in the academe uh, teaching. But One year, uh, around 10 years ago, I had to teach a course on social media. No other professor wanted to teach a course to young people where they knew much more than the professor, but I I found that interesting. But in order to do that course, I thought I I should set up a blog. Uh, And so I thought, well, I know quite a bit about risk. I'd been doing risk communication in the 90s before it became uh, very common. So... I set up something which I thought was meant to make people feel a little bit that they have to use facts a little bit more. Uh, And so the page just came naturally as the risk monger to deal with how fear mongers should be kept a little bit under a leash. Uh, 
So uh, we'll, we may get into this a little bit later in the interview, but um, can you talk just a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about risk? Well, that's the thing. Most people aren't really sure what they mean by it. Usually it's entailing some uncertainty that involves um, some personal disquiet or uh, at times you want to use Sandman's approach, outrage. Uh, so usually it has what I would call a justified illogic, which means that uh, most people will be afraid of risks they shouldn't be afraid of uh, and then take enormous risks that they should. So what we really need to deal with in this case is better understanding of facts, uh, better understanding of science, and also better understanding of what is considered um, a real risk and what is not. I think that concept has a lot of uh, applications outside of the scope of just what we're going to talk about here today. Oh, yeah. Every every step you take is a risk, and uh, we manage we manage risks all the time. I mean, essentially, what we're doing is um, there are hazards everywhere, and when we're exposed to a hazard, it becomes something that needs to be managed, and. Uh, People don't really understand that sometimes uh, they want to live in a risk-free world. Um, well, a risk-free world would be a very dull place to be. <laughs> a risk is an opportunity. And when you take a risk, you get benefits from it as well. Um, if you uh, want to give up anything that may be risky, you will have to be prepared to give up all of your benefits as well. That's where the whole concept of risk-rewards come from, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. Today we'd like to talk about a product that historically was known and understood by the general population to have very little risk. And that is Roundup, or the active ingredient, ingredient glyphosate. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about this product and its history? Well, for the history, you have to go back to the 1970s, I believe. In fact, even earlier. Uh, but um, I can give you my own personal history in that I grew up on a farm in the Niagara region in Canada, a town called Jordan to be precise. And when I was seven, eight years old, um, actually it's 1960s then, um, one of my main jobs on the family farm was to go out and pull weeds. And in fact, most um, farming families in the 1960s had seven, eight kids because quite simply you needed the labor. Weeds was a big issue. Weeds, you lose control of the weeds, you lose control of the land. And uh, so it was usually left to the littlest limbs and the family to go out and pull weeds. And when weeds got out of control, uh, that's when the schools uh, had summer holidays. Why else would you have summer holidays in July <laughs> or August in North America except to get the kids out of class and into the fields to pull weeds? So when herbicides uh, like uh, Roundup came along, uh, it created something that farmers in the history of agriculture had never actually seen, which is a freeing up of labor and not only that, a protection and sort of say uh, nourishment of the soil that they had never uh, before experienced. And it allowed several things to happen. First, young, uh, young people actually got to do other things than pull weeds. 
uh, not just on the farm. Some of them actually did have other opportunities, and in fact, it created a freeing up of labor uh, that led to skills developments outside of agriculture. We moved away from an agricultural society into very much more of an industrial society. And in the 1970s, part of that expansion can be to a certain extent thanks to this freeing up of labor. I believe that there was uh, there was a study by Giannassi for crop life that goes back to so the, the 55 million teenagers were basically essentially would be the amount of people we would need in the fields now to replace herbicides today in the United States. Um, I'm not sure that there are 55 million teenagers willing to go back to the farms and pull weeds in the open sunlight. I uh, I mean, uh, I used to pull in onion patches and tomato fields and that, and that, that, that was just, it was awful. But I was young, so I got around okay. So yeah, I did, I did my share of walking beans also, and uh, I'm glad to not be doing too much of that anymore. <laughs> yeah, especially with the snakes and the snapping turtles, but I, I don't want to get into that one. My head was down until it was on top. <laughs> Sounds like a story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I had a great childhood. Uh, no, but I think we have to understand that what this, is when they speak of um, glyphosate or Roundup in particular as the herbicide of the century, it changed the way farming was done. And it allowed also, you know, quite honestly, farm farming populations have gone down from, you know, near 50% of the population to in many countries only 3 or 4%. I think in the States it's even less now. So if you have a smaller population producing a higher yield, Something is happening there, and it's not simply mechanization. So I think that is the first element to realize that uh, it changed society. Secondly, it also changed how farmers were able to farm. Now, we will probably talk a little bit about GMOs in North America, but today if I look at farming and what's happening around the world, I'm looking at the uh, revolution of what is called here conservation agriculture, which means no-till farming and using complex cover crops to essentially uh, replace the need for fertilizers and prepare the land in the off-season for the next cash crop coming in. And there you can begin to see the value of uh, herbicides uh, is becoming essential to farmers being able to farm sustainably. And I think that's a big part of our story that in agriculture that maybe doesn't get out enough to the general population is how these products enable uh, us to be more environmentally friendly, basically. Oh, yeah, I, I'm looking at some of the um, pioneers, particularly there's some groups in the UK that are doing cover crops with 10-way splits of different seeds. And if you can begin to realize that, uh, you know, for example, a hairy vetch will add nitrogen to the soil, uh, you can begin to realize if you're going to plant, uh, say, barley afterwards, you can, prepare the, uh, you can prepare the soil in a certain way for the crop that's going to follow. You can also uh, deal with the types of insects you could anticipate and uh, you could add into a mix of cover crops pretty well. Every sort of tool uh, in a farmer's toolbox outside of using pesticides. So it's actually creating the knowledge that's being developed is, is developing to a certain point that um, you know, the, you know, the ability to have no-till cover crops and just drill your, you know, your next crop in 
is changing the way farming is happening, creating more sustainability and also um, lower costs. There is a risk though. And this was shared with me by several farmers where I met in the UK last month. At the moment, the present attempts in the European Union to ban glyphosate uh, means that many farmers understand the advantage of these uh, complex cover crops and no-till farming. But in order to buy the drills and adapt the machinery, will require an investment. And not many farmers will want to make that investment if they think that uh, glyphosate-based uh, herbicides will be off the market within uh, two or three years. And that's where the NGOs are probably being the most environment, environmentally destructive actors in this game. Um, so, so glyphosate, it's a chemical. A lot of consumers, if you were to ask a, a man on the street, uh, he would describe chemicals as being bad for you. Uh, there's a lack of understanding. I wondered if you could delineate maybe between uh, the toxicity profile of glyphosate compared to other common uh, household items. For instance, I know you talk a lot about coffee. Well, I, I mean, everything is toxic. Uh, only the dose makes the toxin. That doesn't sound too terribly fascinating. It shouldn't because it was said by a man by the name of Paracelsus in the 1400s. Um, but we still don't seem to understand that today. So I think when we talk about toxicity, we have to understand exactly at what dose and exactly at what point we're exposed. Uh, many people talk about the fact that you can drink glyphosate. You can, but I understand it doesn't taste very good and there isn't any nutritional value. <laughs> but the point is it has an LD50, which is the uh, considered the, the dose at 50% level that would kill, um, in this case, normally a mouse. And it has an LD50 much lower than a lot of things that we commonly consume, including uh, baking soda that we have in our cookies and um, the, you know, a lot of different materials in chocolate. Now, the coffee example is quite good because coffee um, is uh, very toxic and it has, um, well, there are more than a thousand chemicals in a single cup of coffee, only 32 of which have been tested and 19 of which are highly carcinogenic to rats. Uh, this is not me. This is Bruce Ames who said this back in the late 1970s. I suspect that either coffee has gotten more mild since or uh, we've perhaps tested a few more. But the, the point is quite simple. Uh, the chemicals in a, the cup of coffee are natural, so we're not afraid of them. But they are uh, indeed as toxic and more toxic than the uh, synthetic chemicals if we were to actually test them all. In fact, Ames went on to say that you would consume more carcinogens in that single cup of coffee than if you had pesticide residues on a full year of fruit and vegetable consumption. So what Ames is concerned about, of course, is that we should be eating more fruit and vegetables if we want to reduce our risk of uh, contracting cancers. But if people are afraid of cancers from pesticide residues, then, you know, organic food prices go up, then we're going to eat fewer fruit and vegetables. We're going to be unable to afford it. And that, is, that prompted Bruce Ames to uh, basically, you know, stop the, stop the party that the activists were having. 
It's, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a lot of marketing involved, but if you look at a picture, you know, just the general consumer looks at a picture of a crop duster going over the field, they have a very different reaction to a picture of a cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's, it's used... The, the mist of the water just, you know, looks like it's, you know, it's chemicals everywhere. <laughs> so speaking of marketing a little bit, that kind of leads us into, you know, what we'd like to talk about. And that is, we can't turn on a TV, uh, radio, internet, anything here in the U.S. without hearing an ad about joining a lawsuit for glyphosate. So we'd like um, to have you talk a little bit about this. There's a story there, and we'd like to kind of hear it from you. Well, most people in the world do not have such a litigious approach to society. So um, if I speak of Europeans who travel to Europe, they will talk about seeing these uh, commercials and they're just stunned by it. Uh, and it's important to realize that um, within, the, uh, within the framework of the structure of legal systems, uh, other countries do not have this approach. One of the main reasons, I think, has to do with cost. If I want to uh, take a company to court, I'll have to pay my lawyer. So I'll have to have a pretty good chance of winning before I'll consider joining in these lawsuits. Um, so to understand the legal system, I think most Americans, I, I have a hard time understanding how their legal system works or how the judiciary seems to write their own rules outside of the rest of the society. Um, and so it has become a rather interesting business now, what's interesting to look at there is that any business, of course, has to grow and uh, find its markets. The uh, tort law industry had uh, some very good years with asbestos litigation and also with tobacco litigation until uh, some of these avenues dried up. Many asbestos firms went bankrupt, and so there were limited opportunities for growth in that sector. And once you had the tobacco agreement, uh, I think in 48 states now, it's no longer possible to sue tobacco companies. So it, these law firms that grew very quickly started to face the fear that they may have to move back into the strip malls pretty soon. And I don't think they, that was sort of in their, in their business plan. So they needed to get new substances that were proven to be carcinogenic, that they could then find products that people used on a large level, and from that be able to then create the opportunities for new series of lawsuits. It's a business model. It's an interesting business model. Now, when you look at what uh, what happens with uh, glyphosate in particular, is that that's a very widely used product, not only by farmers, of course, by many consumers, and it has obviously uh, garden applications as well. And so, they uh, the only thing was that they could not find a link uh, from any sort of scientific body to cancer. So, of course, many claimed uh, in uh, articles that it was a carcinogen, but there was no regulatory body, there were no laws, there was, there was nothing 
that said this was a carcinogen and the level of toxicity was so low that there wasn't even need for protective clothing outside of perhaps gloves. So it it was, I think, for many in the legal profession, the holy grail to find a way to open up lawsuits, particularly against a company uh, like uh, Monsanto at the time that had a very... Uh, a rather strong uh, reputation, particularly related related to GMOs. Yeah, take a picture of a crop duster spraying a field and uh, put Monsanto logo on it, and you have the scariest uh, picture you can have here, just about. Yeah. Now we have to put this within a timeline, and this I think really timelines are important to understand what's going on. The uh, move against uh, glyphosate started really in 2014. What was happening in 2014? Maybe go back to 2011, 2012. There was a campaign to label GMOs. See, we're talking about pesticides, but we shouldn't be talking about pesticides. We need to be talking about GMOs at this point. And there there were different ballots in different states uh, to label GMOs, and the uh, particularly the uh, the GMA, the Grocery Manufacturer Association in the U.S., uh, took a strong stand against it, uh, fearing that if the public sees a label that says GMOs inside, that they would run away from it, which was, I think, in itself a questionable policy at the time. But in any case, what happened was it was a very hard-fought lobbying campaign. In fact, there were many different issues that came out uh, in that period, but the labeling uh, campaigners led by people like Gary Ruskin, who found something else to do since, uh, did not take kindly to losing that campaign. And they were not going to stop and give up and let GMOs become the norm in every kitchen cupboard. At the same time, there was also a uh, bill uh, that was uh, passed in the, uh, I believe, in the House that, um, I can't remember the the official name of it, but it was also called the Monsanto Protection Act, which would allow farmers to be able to plant seeds and not have to be faced with court injunctions by their neighbors because they were afraid they are going to be planting a GMO seed. So... Many of the campaigns against GMOs failed and failed miserably at that period, which meant there had to be a new strategy. And this new strategy focused not so much on the GMO, but on uh, the fact that if you had a uh, herbicide-tolerant or herbicide-resistant seed, uh, it would only have a value if you were able to use a herbicide with it. So if you could take the herbicide away or ban the herbicide in certain countries, then you would remove an export market for your animal feed in particular. So the strategy moved towards banning GMOs via banning glyphosate. And so in 2014, at the same time as the uh, labeling campaigns were you know, going down in flames, there started the uh, the strategy within uh, IARC to list glyphosate as uh, one of the main subjects to do uh, a study on. 
Now, I, I should, I'm jumping a bit, but IARC is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is affiliated with the WHO and does a series of monographs, which are considered the state of the science on any substance or any product. So that was a real change of strategy. There is no longer um, this ability in the US to uh, essentially regulate GMOs off the market. And at the same time, given the nature of the US um, political structure, where you've got a fairly good, strong majority of uh, senators from farm states, it was unlikely that you were going to pass any legislation in any case. Europe became a more interesting place. And I suddenly started to notice Americans coming over. Uh, Starbucks branches started opening up in the center of Brussels, something we'd never seen before. And we, we suddenly realized that this was not a European debate about glyphosate that was going on. It was very much a debate about GMOs where the, uh, I refer to them as carpetbaggers, where a lot of NGO groups from the US were coming over and working with NGO groups uh, in, in Brussels to ban glyphosate. There are no GMOs being used in this case, no herbicide tolerant GMOs, I should say, uh, being used in Europe. Uh, it became quite simply the political structure and the, the policy tools, including a tool like the precautionary principle, would offer more of an opportunity. And at the same time... If you can't, if you can't win your fight one way, you take a new strategy. You find more fertile ground. And that was, that, that was quite simple. If you made uh, glyphosate uh, residue uh, illegal for, uh, in the EU, then no exports of grains, which most soy and maize that's being exported from the US, Argentina, Brazil into the EU would have trace residue uh, levels of glyphosate. If you made it illegal, then you would remove the potential markets for, for your grain. So farmers would have no incentive to continue to grow uh, herbicide tolerant um, wheat, oh, sorry, not wheat, sorry. Uh, they, farmers would have no incentive to grow uh, herbicide tolerant soy or maize. So that was one element that was happening at this point. There's another element that came in, uh, which uh, I think probably had a deeper background into what, uh, what has led us to where we are today. And that was a meeting in 2012, I believe, in a town called La Jolla, uh, outside of San Diego in California. And it was a meeting, uh, it was called by Naomi, Naomi Oreska, and uh, she brought a series of lawyers, academics, uh, and activists together to look at how uh, successful the what could be called the tobacconization strategy was and to see if it could be applied to other businesses. They were looking at climate change in particular. Essentially what they saw was that the uh, tobacco industry did not cave in and change because they discovered virtue. They essentially had so many lawsuits threatening their business 
that they came to the negotiating table uh, out of fear that they would be sued out of existence. So what this group in La Jolla did was set out a battle plan for how to work with NGOs, how to work with academics and scientists, and how to work with law firms together in a coordinated strategy to essentially sue the hell out of industry in order to bring them to the table. This is another type of regulatory approach than the uh, normal democratic process. So from the La Jolla strategy, of course, they were looking at first at how to sue ExxonMobil out of business. If Exxon, if Exxon were not to, um, you know, since we speak today of eco-justice, if ExxonMobil were to have to be accountable for every beach, California beachfront residency that gets uh, blown over by strong winds and uh, you know freak weather incidences, they will get out of the oil business. And so it became a clear strategy that soon after the La Jolla meeting, the uh, I think it was the New York District Attorney subpoenaed Exxon to see whether they themselves were uh, acting uh, fully aware that their product was going to be uh, causing climate change. Quite remarkable when you think about it that they that the idea um, the idea that companies could be responsible for global weather patterns. But what happened quite simply was it became a new strategy. So these two things happening together for glyphosate became quite an interesting shift in the, uh, in the playing field. And it created new opportunities for the tort industry, which had been, uh, as I said, running out of financial opportunities. I mean, this is pre-opioid, by the way, so I, I think you can begin to realize that there were, you know, there were only so many fender benders you could tie up in the courts for so long. So, at a certain point, then um, another thing came in, another factor came in. So the, the, the NGOs now were quite clearly happy to work with law firms, and we saw a few cases where this had already happened. Um, and the, you know, so obviously the, the academics as well started to see the role of the, um, the you know, of litigation in their, in their research. But on top of that, you also had a series of what I would call interesting retirements of academic scientists or sort of regulatory scientists who uh, had probably been frustrated for decades during the time of tobacco research, where evidence clearly showed that cigarettes were extremely harmful and they were ignored. So there were many scientists retiring from uh, the uh, regulatory risk management field with a certain bone to pick, I would say. And these uh, scientists started to find uh, ways to, to use what I would call alternative forms of regulation. Essentially, the regulatory process was broken. That's how they felt. And they began to exchange papers among themselves. Now, this was not being done in, uh, you know, in, in North Carolina. This was not being done 
in Washington. This was being done in a small town in Italy where you have an organization known as the uh, Collegium Ramazzini. And it created a, another mentality towards how scientists need to function. And it's quite simply, uh, if you want, no scientist wants to see the facts and be ignored. I mean, that's no, nobody likes that in general. But if you, if you see something that is dangerous, or if you see something that is quite clearly a fact and everybody else is ignoring it, it can be quite frustrating. But what certain members of this rather esteemed uh, group, Ram I, I refer to the Ramazzini Institute as a rotary club for activist scientists, but essentially they would meet and they would compare papers, they would have these Ramazzini days, and it essentially was a talking shop for a lot of um, American, esteemed American scientists uh, that would essentially try to map out the new strategy of where science would be in future related to policy. And a couple of them developed uh, some papers and uh, passed them around among themselves and several concepts emerged from it. One of them being a concept called adversarial regulation. Adversarial regulation means quite simply like the La Jolla conference that you can, rather than trying to regulate through a risk assessment process through the agencies where you gather evidence and make decisions, the goal here is to uh, create evidence that a law firm can use to sue the company essentially either out of existence or to get them to change. And people like Bernie Goldstein were quite openly speaking in conferences saying this is much more effective even than the precautionary principle in Europe. So now you have a group of scientists, and there's uh, I can track at least a dozen names that are involved in finding an alternative regulatory approach to the risk assessment approach. And the idea, quite simply, was to go via the lawyer. And uh, they began to also realize that um, at $500 an hour, you can actually do very good, uh, a very good living as a litigation consultant. So, but more than just the money and the greed, these people truly believed that, it, that the regulatory process was broken and they were going to fix things themselves. Not quite democratic, um, but rather interesting to see. So all three of these elements were happening at the same time as IARC was coming up to a monograph uh, that was uh, called Monograph 112 which was originally supposed to be for a series of insecticides. But something interesting happened. It was no longer simply a group of insecticides as the original call, which uh, I believe was published. Uh, there was a call for panel members, which was published, I believe, in June of 2014. They then added in an update in October 2014, glyphosate. It's not an insecticide. Huh. But it was around that time that the strategy started to come in place that there needed to be a, um, a, new, um, a new study on glyphosate. Now, what was interesting to note there was that glyphosate was added on the IARC advisory panel that was published in April of 2014. 
This panel was chaired by a person by the name of Christopher Portier, one of the Ramazzini uh, strategists who wants who wanted to change uh, a, and move away from the risk assessment approach into the adversarial uh, regulatory approach. So it was interesting that uh, essentially after well. Portier spent six months working at IARC before. He had retired already uh, from his role as a regulatory scientist uh, and was working, I believe, for the Environmental Defense Fund as a consultant. So he went to IARC for six months to work under Kurt Streif, who was in charge of the monograph program. And then from that was able to uh, be able to have a... Um, uh, sorry, there's, there's noise here. Let me repeat that. So... Um, Chris Portier was working for uh, under Kurt Streif at, at IARC under the monograph program. And what happened was he was able to, uh, you know, after his end of a six month period as a visiting scholar, he chaired this external advisory group to decide the next five years of studies. And in there he included glyphosate. At this point, glyphosate was not going to be part of the insecticide call for monograph 112. It was added in October. And although Chris Portier was added to that monograph as a uh, uh, external advisor, it wasn't because he had a conflict of interest, as IARC likes to say. He was added later when glyphosate was added, six months after the original call because it was too late to bring in new panel members. All countries had nominated their panel members already. So what's Portier doing there? Well, Portier at the same time had meetings with law firms in the US, particularly Soleil, Soleil and South, and uh, Weitz and Luxembourg. Um, and he had had a contract already on another uh, substance, not a substance actually, but mobile phones, uh, which is another area of potential uh, cancer litigation in the future. Hold that, hold that placement. Um, and so this was before he went to IARC to work on the monograph. Uh, once again, he was no longer a, um, he was he was external advisor, but he was involved in all the discussions. And he signed contracts afterwards to work as a litigation consultant for these law firms on glyphosate when he came back. So you begin to realize there's already the relationship with the law firms and IARC. And generally, most of the people who are working as litigation consultants in this group are going in via Ramazzini. Uh, in, a, in the U.S., many of them were managed out of Linda Birnbaum's office, but that gets even trickier now that she's gone, and I don't think she's going to talk anymore. So you begin to realize that there is something going on here with the strategy in Ramazzini, the Ramazzini strategy of adversarial regulation, the move to get glyphosate into an IARC uh, panel, uh, which had nothing to do with uh, herbicides, and then quite literally days after they got the decision. It was the only decision of any agency uh, that would that came out with a conclusion that glyphosate is a carcinogen and the law firms had all they needed to go to town. Now, why does this sound suspicious? Well, there was another case a few years earlier on benzene where uh, many law firms, uh, IARC as well, had a monograph on benzene that showed that it was a carcinogen. Nobody's debating that. 
but they did not clearly say that it was carcinogenic for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a rather interesting type of cancer to work with. So what happened was several of these uh, retired scientists slash litigation consultants went back to IARC and said, you need to do another monograph on benzene. And Kurt Streif, the head of the monograph program, said, nope, sorry, we've, we've done one already. It's fine. And there were email exchanges going on where uh, Bernie Goldstein in particular says, yes, but we cannot successfully sue industry for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma without having a clear decision in an IARC monograph that says there is a link. Wow. So Kurt Streif again in email said, no, no, thank you. But uh uh, Goldstein and Peter Infante and others ensued and to everyone's surprise and outside of the normal IARC process there was a, another monograph and to everyone's surprise again it drew a link between non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and benzene. So the essentially the scientists now are working as consultants on behalf of uh, the tort law firms and IARC knows this. In fact, on the previous benzene um, publication that was in the Lancet, IARC acknowledged that several panel members, including Bernie Goldstein and Martin T. Smith, declared that they were working for plaintiffs suing benzene manufacturers. They declared this, and it was published and it was not considered by IARC to be a conflict of interest, that they would then use the decision of IARC in their courtrooms. I mean, Martin T. Smith even got, Martin T. Smith even got IARC to publish uh, in, their, in the citations 12 of his articles. Okay, so we, we're dealing with conflicts of interest at so many different levels here. And, and for IARC, it was okay. Uh, IARC, to a certain degree, um, Kurt Streif uh, was very much of the Ramazzini culture, uh, understood the role that IARC played in the La Jolla playbook of suing industry. They were there to provide the evidence that the lawyers needed, and the scientists working as litigation consultants for the law firms were essentially the main liaisons between the U.S. and the IARC offices in Lyon. And it's there. It's, it's there. It's completely obvious. You have situations where Kate Guyton, for example, went to the European Parliament and openly lied about the timeline of glyphosate, uh, knowing full well uh, what their value is. There were emails released to show how actively engaged the IARC staff were in watching the litigation processes and the attempts to ban glyphosate. This is not something scientists do. Uh, and when a scientist would question or challenge the IARC report, like, for example, Bob Tyrone did, uh, IARC did not behave in a scientific way. They started to attack Tyrone. They had other people write articles against him, fed information to journalists like uh, Kerry Gillum. Sorry, did I say journalist? Uh, activists like Kerry Gillum. And, uh, <laughs> um, and then, you know, and then on top of that, start to attack the journals and threaten that if you dare publish, you know, Tyrone's article in print version, we're going to take an ethics committee uh, uh, you know, uh, complaint, a COPE uh, complaint against you. This is a UN agency. 
and they're behaving like a band of activists. And it's it's quite fascinating to see how all of this is playing out with the clear intention of making sure to protect the IARC monograph against uh, any doubts that would then discredit the evidence that was needed in a courtroom. IARC is the only organization to have had a decision until now to say that glyphosate is a carcinogen. Why is that? Well, IARC does uh, what's considered a hazard assessment, not a risk assessment. They talk a little bit about that now today, but before they use the two words interchangeably at the time of the glyphosate monograph. Essentially, the difference between a, a hazard assessment and a risk assessment comes down to exposure. When they say, for example, as IARC has concluded, that sunlight is a carcinogen, it's true. You can burn yourself in the sun if you stay, you know, if you stay full time out in the sun and not protect your body. You will get different types of skin cancers or more. So what you need to understand is how much exposure to a substance before it becomes a risk. And this is where it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to common usage of a product. You can speak about something being uh, a hazard, but if you manage the exposure, which is what risk management does, then it's not a risk. There, uh, there are cars on my street outside. Those are hazards. They could kill people, but I'm sitting inside speaking to you, so I'm not exposed to the cars, so it's not a risk. So it, it's to speak about a hazard and a risk in the same uh, sense doesn't make any sense. So when the Environmental Working Group comes out with a, you know, a survey of glyphosate residue on, on Cheerios, sorry to use the brand name, uh, they don't say that anything more than, yes, it is a hazard. They don't tell you how many boxes of Cheerios you would have to eat every day. Uh, the answer is 4,000, by the way, uh, before you would expose yourself to any 4,000. 4, well, give or take. Uh, it, it depends on the size of the child, uh, the body weight. And I'm afraid if you're adding other things like sugar to your Cheerios, you're probably going to get there soon. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I, 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 what you've got, so this. This right here says that the IARC decisions are rather useless. When they talk about drinking hot liquids as being a carcinogen, you have to understand how hot is hot and how often do you have to drink this. But their job, quite simply, is to identify a hazard and leave it to the other agencies to identify at what level of exposure and how much exposure you would need. Now, most courtroom uh, jury members would not understand this and would not get that. They would not get that every other agency in the world has rejected the IARC decisions. And after taking account of IARC's decision, they, you know, for example, EFSA and the European Chemical Agency and the German BFR, that, uh, the risk assessment agency in Germany that was handling the glyphosate dossier, went back and looked at all the evidence again and still came to the same conclusions. It was not a carcinogen. So you begin to realize that there are, there are different things happening here. And it has nothing to do with the you know, our leaders making sure to protect us. 
this is a group of lawyers with a lot of money. I mean, if they have a settlement of 250 million, what's a couple million to to pay to a couple scientists and to some NGOs? And they're essentially creating a playing field where evidence is unclear, good for courtrooms, where activists are creating public outrage, so what I call jury priming, and companies are faced with a situation where they are suffering from nothing less than extortion. If we can continue to advertise and get more clients, then we will eventually have these companies have to settle out of court because their shareholders will not want the uncertainty of these lawsuits dragging dragging on and you know decreasing shareholder value. So it's got nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with integrity, nothing to do with public safety. It is, simply put, the greed of the U.S. tort industry, and it's now being done at a global scale. What's happening in Europe? Same thing. The, uh, the number of law firms that come regularly to Brussels from the U.S., some of them are marching cancer victims with them to come and testify in the European Parliament, where there are many green MEPs that are very happy to let them have a microphone. Uh, you begin to realize that this, this you know, facade that's going on uh, is just making European regulators look stupid. Where, meanwhile, European farmers keep coming up to me at events asking me, well, what do I do? How will I be able to farm if these products are taken away? And I don't know what to tell them. I mean, I remember one time I was speaking, I, I speak to a lot of farmer groups, you know, many of them meet every month uh, in restaurants. And I, I went on a tour one time to just go and visit in the southern UK, a lot of these uh, farming groups. Fantastic people, lovely meetings. But I, I was asked that one time. I said, what are we going to do? How will we deal with black grass if we don't have glyphosate? And I said, well, you're going to have to cheat. Now, farmers don't do that. Farmers follow the law. If they can't farm properly, if they can't grow one substance or one crop because a substance is banned, then they'll find something else. And, and I get that. The real victims are the farmers, other victims as well as the consumers who are going to pay more. Uh, they're going to pay more not only because their food's more expensive, they're going to pay more uh, because these uh, settlements and uh, these courtroom shenanigans are going to push up the price of their food. Uh, the insurance companies are going to push up the premiums that they're going to charge not only to the farmers but to the industry as well. Why do you think in the U.S. healthcare is more expensive than anywhere else in the world? And at the same time, the level of quality is much lower than anywhere else in the world. I mean, I'm sorry, I live in Belgium and we have a very good healthcare compared and dollar for dollar, much cheaper, much better. Quite simply, you're spending a lot of your healthcare budget, your hospital budget, to pay off the litigation insurance that is needed to keep the lawyers at bay. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Right now, if you look at all of the lawsuits going on, and uh, not just about glyphosate, but about a lot of different agricultural products. And I spoke to a reinsurer about this. It's exactly the same thing. You're going to have, thanks to these lawyers, 
you're going to have more expensive, lower quality food in the United States. The lawyers will keep their private jets. The scientists, the scientists are going to be on the private jets. The NGOs, they're doing fine. And it's fine. so. Are you are you uh, are you implying that the lawyers and the uh, other groups don't have the plaintiffs' best uh, interests at heart? Let's imagine what happens in a settlement. <laughs> um, normally, the first person to get paid in a settlement is the law firm. Now, once all of the other costs are deducted, the plaintiff will receive a certain compensation. Something has happened in the last 10 years. I, I do um, a series called Slimegate, where I'm getting into every little detail of the litigation process. I find it fascinating. It's really, quite honestly, unhealthy for me, I have to say as well. But there, there, there are at the moment about 200 pages. Uh, yeah, the book will be coming out. I'm looking forward to doing a US tour. I'll need a bodyguard, but anyway. Um, what's, what's happening in the, the whole litigation process now is that you have a new field of financial services. There's not only the advertising services, and when the internet came along, a lot of the advertising costs for many of these tort law firms skyrocketed because, of course, you're having to pay for AdWords, you're having to pay for a lot of different types of ads and outreach, not just late-night cable TV anymore. But there was a new type of finance arm that was developed in the last 10 years known as litigation finance. And litigation finance is meant to create a certain uh, revenue stream to law firms when they have these long drawn out cases. There's no longer just class action suits now. Many of these, uh, what are called um, MDLs, multi-district litigations, uh, are putting together thousands of cases, not to be heard at one time. Each case gets heard, but it has to be managed individually, which is adding to costs of these law firms quite quite dramatically. So if you take uh, all the costs that it takes to process through a plaintiff, you know, pay for the litigation consultants, bring in the witnesses, do the research, you're looking at a fairly significant cost and you may not see any of the money, assuming it goes to appeal, the costs of the appeals as well. You may not see any money for maybe five years, maybe more. So these finance companies, many of them are coming out of some of the larger tort law firms, will lend to the law firms. Now, this, given the nature of the judiciary in the U.S., where discovery is something that you can decide upon, transparency is not necessary and in many cases not desirable. So in most cases, any loans that are being made are not at all on the books. Nobody knows how much these law firms are borrowing and nobody knows how much the interest charges are. Until there's a case where somebody gets unhappy and sues for damages and you begin to see the amount of money that's being passed around by a litigation finance firms, they get about 20% interest per year plus whatever payout comes at the end. So you suddenly are seeing a new form of revenue come in in order that the law firms can continue to live and you know more or less cash their fees in advance. But they're paying 20% per year on these cases. Okay, there's nothing left for the plaintiffs. 
Okay. In fact, there's a good question whether the litigation uh, finance firms will get all the money back that they are contractually owed. And nobody actually knows how shaky that house of cards is. But quite simply, I referred to it one time as a Ponzi scheme. All it takes is one company to decide not to settle when you've got law, when you've got law firms managing thousands of cases and protract it out of, uh, out of a settlement for two years, three years. Not only will these tort law firms have to sell off their plaintiffs to other law firms, and this is done all the time, they're selling tens of thousands of cases between them. Uh, many, many plaintiffs will see different law firms three to four times changing hands during the life cycle of their case. But even worse, the litigation finance firms may go under. This is something that will make the bank failures in 2009 look, look like peanuts. We don't know how much out there is being borrowed. You're seeing the commercials on TV every night. Okay, that's being paid on borrowed money. So I go to bed with this prayer every night. And my prayer sounds something like this. Lord, can we have another day? where industry resists the greed of these evil tort law firms. May they spend, may these tort law firms go to bed tonight thinking we may not make it through another day if we can't extort the money from these companies and may these companies resist them for as long as possible. That's my prayer every night. And in the morning I get up and I feel good when I see that these firms haven't settled. It's not just about glyphosate. You see that happening with uh, talc powder. We see that with benzene, of course. We see now, for example, what's happening with the opioids, which, of course, have many different problems and causes. But the ability for us to only have one conclusion, it's industry that's evil, and everyone else has to pay. Of course, the only people who receive money in the end are the tort law firms. Um, this system's broken. That's a... Yeah, that's a... Fascinating story, and um, you know, it almost sounds when you when you talk through the whole the, all the details, it almost sounds like a conspiracy theory. Or but this information is all out there. Why haven't more? Why hasn't the media picked up on this, this is, story? This is my question as well. I call it the Bambi effect. Um, by the way, the Bambi effect has different meanings as well. If you Google it, you'll realize I didn't know it when I named it that. Um, but um, the uh, essentially, I, I I wrote I wrote all of this down, and I thought this is more scandalous than when I you know when I exposed the scientists who uh, essentially um, undermined the neonic uh, usage, and nobody was interested. Here you have an agency where I showed just within two monographs, benzene and glyphosate, 30 cases of corruption. And we're talking serious corruption, which should have cost everybody their jobs. Nobody was interested. I showed how this whole structure is being abused, that these law firms are essentially paying these scientists to be non-transparent. Once again, Nobody is interested. No journalist picked it up. Journalists were happy to pick up the, the whole B movement thing. And this, this stunned me. It stunned me for a lot of reasons. Um, and it has, yeah, uh, 
people in my in my circle know very much about it and you know we all kind of nod and you know say this is horrible but my tribe is you know maybe 10,000 people it's not a lot um, a lot of you know when the New York Times comes out with a story uh, and they have this um, ability to amplify it through these organizations everybody's outraged so Obviously, social media now is dividing us into different choirs and these these tribes, um, some big, some small, have influence. Industry right now is going through a serious issue with the way, um, you know, this, we need a new source of evil out there. And the ability to highlight industry as evil uh, is a, a very powerful tool. The social justice warriors out there need blood from something, and so industry seems to pay it for it. Watching the uh, Democratic uh, debates going on, I, I, it's just uh, such a fascinating sociological experiment to see how uh, everybody, uh, even, even Mike Bloomberg, is falling over themselves trying to attack industry. So you begin to realize that there are many things at play here. Um, but facts aren't important. Quite simple. Um, and they're not important in the courtroom. They're not important. They're not important in the media. They only seem important in the lab and in the companies. Uh, but most people don't have time to read the facts. They only really want to get uh, 280 characters and a nice image. If you don't have a nice image, forget it. Um, and that's the level of intellectual capacity we're dealing with today. And we're much happier to have outrage, much happier to have uh, someone we can blame and put everything you know, within our own world in order than a complicated story where there are no good guys or that the good guys aren't the ones we expect it to be. And it's very frustrating for me sometimes because I, it's not hard to find this information. Um, and it's not hard for me to, nobody's ever actually said, you know, David, you were wrong. But uh, I've lost a job because of this. Uh, I had my blog site shut down. It was quite funny. I actually had my blog site shut down because I exposed a journalist in Le Monde that I said was working for IARC to attack EFSA. Uh, Le Monde threatened to sue the organization that was hosting my blog site, so they shut down my blog overnight. Um, wow. I saw an email wow. afterwards that was released during the uh, Portier deposition that showed exactly what I had said. Um, so I was right, but I lost my blog site. Um, I got physically dragged Holy out of the God. Monsanto Tribunal. Okay, that was justified. I showed up with some farmers, and we had a conference across the street. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my bandana Shiva was there, and I wanted to meet her. Um, but uh, the I, I I brought some farmers across the street from them, and I, we had a, a morning session before the, the Monsanto Tribunal started off. And I thought it would be kind of nice for the media that they had assembled to hear from farmers because they were kind of the missing people in the Monsanto Tribunal uh, on why they actually used agri-technologies. And it was great. We had an Indian farmer Skype in. We had uh, Joni from Hawaii talk about the GM papaya. We had uh, a lot of interesting discussions 
And then we thought we'd just go across the street because I was already told I was not welcome. My registration was rescinded. Um, but that's, you know, so, you know, the only people seeking justice for all of this have been people who don't like that I'm showing up what's happening. It's quite fascinating. So farmers don't have ad spin, uh, ad companies, I mean, where you don't spend money actively in social media. You mentioned jury priming earlier. And um, do you have any recommendations for a farmer or for ad companies? How do we help share our story? Or is it a is it a uh, worthless endeavor? I, I think one of the things that's uh, that is happening now more and more is that farmers, and this is going to be sort of, I'm sorry to say, rather sad way to, uh, to answer your question. Um, farmers are becoming also the bad guys. Uh, I'm seeing this in France. It's happened several times that farmers have been attacked on their tractors uh, while they were spraying their fields. One of them was an organic farmer, by the way. Um, but, um, and you know, it, it's the, the public attitudes against farming. Uh, we had people like uh, George Monbiot in, in the UK uh, do a documentary called Apocalypse Cow, where he simply said that we have to stop all farming. Not just questions of uh, beef and dairy, we're talking all farming and rewild the UK in order to save from cows. Oh, that might be a little well, extreme. Yes, but the Guardian came out with a story just the other day about the end of farming. So farmers now are responsible for climate change, it seems. I, I was wondering what photosynthesis was about, but never mind. Um, and so it's, <laughs> and it's, we need somebody to blame. And the farmers have been aligned with this, you know, with the um, crop protection industry as being uh, against the interests of the city. It's easy for people to understand and, uh, and believe this um, because unlike you know, the last generation or two generations ago, there aren't people growing up on a farm anymore. 3% of the population is farming. Before, people used to spend the summers with their grandparents, at least, and so they had a little bit of an idea of what happened on a farm. Now people think that, you know, getting food requires an app, or they think that cows are purple. And there is very little understanding about agriculture today. So I think that's one of the first things we have to understand. We have to get people uh, to understand farming and understand the challenges farmers are, are facing. They've had a horrible year in many places around the world in the last year. I mean, we're watching locusts wipe out East Africa. And nobody seems really too terribly worried about that or upset. Nothing in the media really shows it unless you have specialized media. And it gets to the point that you, most people just assume that the success of the agri-technologies, the success of agriculture would continue. They don't need to use that substance. I mean, they'll get something else. They don't need to farm. We can right. do something else. Right. Grow firewood. <laughs> so the next question is for a, more of a, the consumers in our audience. Um, when I first started following you on Twitter, I remember a meme that you published. It was something about Fifty Shades of White. Uh, and I remember you talking about, you know, determining which science um, or how to differentiate between good science and bad science. From, a, from the, For the consumers listening to the podcast today, 
what are your recommendations for them when they're investigating um, on their own some of these topics? How do they differentiate between the good sides yeah, and the, the bad? Um, I, I got very tired of listening to um, very good evidence being dispelled because it was funded by industry. In fact, the very term industry science carried with it a negative connotation. You couldn't trust industry science. It's a conflict of interest right there. Science is science. I'm afraid that you know, if you, you know, if you drop a uh, spherical object from a certain height, uh, it doesn't matter if industry is doing the experiment or not. Gravity is, you know, gravity is gravity. Um, but it seems that um, a lot of people would not want to believe industry science. There is not really the capacity uh, today, I think, to do regulatory science at the same level. Universities before. Uh, and I, I, I did that when I was at uh, Salve. We, we worked regularly with universities and we funded university programs and we actually, you know, managed to get postdocs to be working with us directly. Today, that's getting harder and harder. Many university academ uh, academics see their career ending if they work with industry because this connotation of industry science. So I, I was looking at all of that and I created a new term, which I thought would be rather appropriate, which I called activist science. Now, activist science, I felt, was also quite suspect because a normal scientist, for example, would gather evidence and make a conclusion. An activist scientist would start with the conclusion and look for evidence. And so you can begin to realize that it's we have to be very careful about people who go out and look at um, you know, getting an evaluation which will get them a publication, which will get them a lot of information, a lot of attention, maybe tenure. So if somebody's going to take a mouse and see how much of a substance it can feed this mouse before it starts to wobble a little bit, uh, we have to sort of look at the nature of their research and question whether it is um, suspect in any way. And today, unfortunately, with the means of publication and the means to be able to essentially pay to play in a lot of these predatory journals as well, where you, if you, if you have two thousand five hundred dollars, you can publish your article and get it peer reviewed by giving the names of the people that you would like to peer review it. And so you begin to realize that the scientific models themselves are being broken. Before the peer review process and the scientific method, you'd be able to get rid of. You know, the, um, the the tests that didn't actually give proper uh, control, you know, control groups to the mice and, you know, made sure to keep the mice alive long enough for the tumors to get rather large. The, uh, most of the time before this science got thrown out quite quickly. Today, now with the ability to publish in any journal anywhere, that has that has blurred our understanding of science. Today as well, you have uh, a lot of uh, scientific debate that's being carried over in social media. It's no longer this ability to allow this self-correcting mechanism to freely go through when all these interest groups are being there before the scientists have managed to reach their decision. And you know, we can see this with COVID-19. We want to know what's happening today. And if scientists need time, well, I'm sorry, we don't have time for you to do that. So we we have a difficulty today is who do I believe and who should I believe? And it's getting harder and harder really to understand that. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating because the 
the policymakers, of course, don't want to be wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong. But that then creates a pressure on the decision-making process. If there's uncertainty, and I have to wait six months for a scientific study to give me the advice, what should I do as a policymaker? Well, the precautionary principle gives me a way out. I don't have to make a decision. In fact, taking precaution itself as a non-decision is safe. I'm never wrong if I take precaution. Just never, you know, not really right. Give you an example. Um, it's I imagine if imagine it's a very bright sunny day uh, in on my street, and I go outside. I have an umbrella with me. Uh, the umbrella is in my bag. It's always in my bag. Okay, that's a precautionary measure. Was I right to bring my umbrella? No, I wasn't right to bring my umbrella. Was I wrong to bring my umbrella? No, I wasn't wrong to bring my umbrella. I'll bring it tomorrow. It's not a big deal. So precaution basically uses that logic. Not being right is not the same as being wrong. With precaution, you're never wrong. So if I have to make a decision as a policymaker on a scientific basis, and there's conflicts between scientists, I will take the precautionary route. It's the easiest way. And that's the challenge because whereas the scientists are frustrated and the scientists may have disagreements, the policymakers are already making decisions without them. Well, David, uh, you've spent a lot of time with us and we definitely appreciate your time. This is a fascinating story. And um, frankly, it's a little bit of a bleak picture and when we kind of wrap up our podcast, we like to look to the future and, um, you know, things that are coming. What is your opinion on the future? Is it as uh, bleak as kind of the picture we've painted when it comes to agriculture, um, you know, and the use of crop protection products? Are we going to go back to um, every farmer uh, hiring every kid from the neighborhood to go back out and pull weeds or what do you think the future looks like? I, I tend, uh, depending on the day uh, and depending on what I'm looking at, to have different views on this. But I, I, find, I find the technology <laughs> fascinating. I find the ability now more and more to, um, particularly in the area of seed breeding, uh, when I look at, for example, what CRISPR can be done uh, and how CRISPR can change and make farming uh, not only more... Uh, uh, you know, manageable, profitable, but also more humane in many cases. I look at the ability of uh, researchers to find solutions, um, you know, in their local universities uh, for local problems that will affect, um, you know, a product in Africa. Uh, I, I see an amazing opportunity with the technologies coming up. But I also see the challenges with populations that have this bucolic image of where their food should come from. And I, I think there is, um, unfortunately, a need for a crisis in order for people to accept the need for technology. Uh, as, you know, as schools get shut down because of the coronavirus, COVID-19, people will welcome having 
disinfectant sprayed in their hallways and in their faces. Uh, they wouldn't want a chemical near them otherwise. So usually risks are relative to other fears. I think the idea of having crops being removed and food prices going up is enough for people to uh, have a look again and wake up. There are enlightened leaders that at the moment they just need a, they need a crisis to give them the courage to act. And the, the researchers are continuing to develop solutions and many of these solutions will create uh, what I'd call competitive imbalances. Uh, Europeans are paying a price today in the farms for not accepting technology in the 1990s. I believe in the next six months there will be a change to how the new plant breeding techniques will be regulated in the EU. And there are a lot of people here who are able to solve a lot of problems. So I, I think in a positive way, we're going to see opportunities uh, at a much faster rate, much more sustainable and much more valuable for farmers. But it's going to take a lot of work to communicate with the public to make sure that the um, the, the one or two percent of the uh, fear mongers in our population who can uh, can raise fears and uh, profit from uh, the uncertainties. Um, we, we'll start to realize that they're like flat earthers. We'll let them speak, but we'll turn their microphones off. <laughs> We're not there yet, though. Well, on that note, um, David, we really appreciate your time. You've been very generous, and um, your opinions have been... Uh, appreciate it as well. We look forward to uh, hopefully talking to you soon. And it's I'll been be a pleasure. I'll be doing a book tour through the States probably in the autumn. So I look forward to meeting you guys uh, and meeting lots of people in the U.S. at some point. They're going to let me out of my you know dark, dusty basement, I think. That'll be <laughs> <laughs> Is there somewhere where our listeners can uh, follow well, you? If you just Google the Riskmonger, uh, you'll find me on Twitter, you'll find me on Facebook, and uh, riskmonger.com, risk with a hyphen monger.com. And uh, yeah, I just put up an article about Vandana Shiva, who apparently um, has feels that COVID-19 was caused by Monsanto. So um, that's, <laughs> that's not news. What I did is I did an evaluation into how she actually came to that conclusion and how she's got everyone to believe her. That's the more interesting part. <laughs> <laughs> so articles online at riskmonger.com on a fairly regular basis. So, And I'm happy to engage with people uh, through the wonderful world of social media. Well, thank you My for pleasure. your time. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.